Hello, Freaktos. Welcome to Radical Research. That's Melvin's from 2002's Hostile Ambient Takeover, a bit from Album Ender Anti-Vermin Seed. This is Radical Research 36. I'm Jeff Wagner. It's good to know you're Hunter again. Glad to see you again. We meet over some weird music, which is so weird that we would do that. Isn't it? Yeah. It's like we never do this otherwise until we record (laughs) a damn show every two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even care for music before. Kind of over just sound in general. Pretty much, I'm really man. getting into like individuals. Like <laughs> really? using my eyes more than my ears. Like Netflix with the sound turned down. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, as we uh, mentioned at the end of the previous episode, we're going to cover Melvin's Hostile Ambient Takeover album. A lot of reasons why we chose this. Chose not to do a career retrospective or impossible. Impossible, totally. Uh, we could have done a show on all the seven inches alone, probably. And, you know, favorites like Bullhead won't be mentioned a whole lot, but uh, that's maybe another show. And certainly we don't, um, you know, we're not denying any other Melvin's era, but we just thought that this would be interesting. I think starting this survey of Hostile Ambient Takeover kind of means we have to go back a little bit and see where they were at before this, don't we? Well, evolution's a very important part in the uh, the Melvins conversation. Any conversation that you have about the Melvins, um, because they are, you know, so, this chameleonic band that's always either, um, you know, out of their own interest in evolving. Or, but there's also like sort of a, an impish, even kind of like predatory humor. <laughs> that underlies the Melvin's work. And, and I mean, you can definitely hear that on records like um, Stag and Honky, where you, it, it almost seems antagonistic. It's like, let's see how long the listeners can hang with us. I like predatory humor. That's excellent. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that sums it right up. And they always had a little bit of that either levity or irony. Right. Um, I think it kind of came with the territory that they would tread in. But um it really became magnified in the mid to late nineties with them. I think, as you mentioned, sure. stag, stag and honky. So yeah, that, and that's where we're at before hostile ambient takeover. We find the Melvins at this sort of crossroads. They just got off of a major label uh, experience, which I, I think in hindsight, they kind of just laugh at it. Hey, right I've, for never, that. I've never um, heard a band who seemed less disillusioned by the major label experience. Like going in, it was almost like they knew exactly what it was. It's like, this is a business. Like, you know, it's a a mechanism for profit. 
and yeah. we'll just take it at face value. Like there, there was no, I don't think there was any love lost. It was like, okay, you know, we're done with this part. Yeah, and they, and they continue to do what they were going to do, whether they were on boner or amphetamine reptile or whatever. I really feel like, you know, Houdini, Stoner Witch, and Stag, uh, they might have benefited from maybe a little more major label budget with right. recording. But I think I think in terms of their focus and where they went with their music, it was just going to be whatever they were going to do. That's totally. how Melvin's, man, they don't, they don't answer to anybody. They never have. Totally. Now, when we say they, I don't think we need a huge historical synopsis on the Melvin's. Most people probably know the 80s and early 90s story of this band, at least the weirdos that listen to us. Uh, but for our exploration, let's just, of course, get it out of the way that Melvin's is guitarist, vocalist, Buzz Osborne, and drum player, as they like to call him, <laughs> Dale Crover. And they truly had this revolving door of bassists in and out of the band for their entire career. They still do. Yeah. So we're going to go back to 97. And as we mentioned, we, we find the Melvins fresh off Atlantic at this point. Uh, they record the third and basically final full length with bassist Mark Dutram. I don't know if you count Prick as a proper album. I don't. I don't so either. We could, we could say fourth. Yeah. But they do this album Honky, which ends up on Amphetamine Reptile.
I don't know what a fructose is, but I like it. <laughs> I want to. I want to live there. Yeah, man. That that's that's a great moment from Honky. Well, it's probably the single most accessible moment from Honky. Mm. But, but I think that what's interesting about it is like in the midst of all their mischief, um, there is this line, uh, especially from like Houdini all the way up to hostile ambient takeover. And then certainly after that of, you know, this, this love of heavy ass seventies groove. Definitely. Yeah. And I think they showed that with revolve. Uh, that, that's a pretty great example oh, dude, of totally of where they were like, okay, we're going to, you know, I think before that they mentioned that they love kiss and ZZ top and things like that, but you never really saw it in a literal manner. And I think Revolve they just kind of stripped it away. They're like, yeah, fuck it. We really like those. And we want to sound very close to that. And, um, Stoner it always had definitely the, like the major introduction of that element to their sound, but you're right with freak toast. This is, this is kind of really the demarcation point where, uh, they started putting this onto their albums as an ingredient pretty regularly. So yeah, good point. Good selection. You you pick that one. Uh, it's not easy to comb through Honky because it's that's that really remains one of their most perplexing <laughs> albums. You know, it is. Uh, no, it's a very challenging listen. So yeah, after Honky and its and its predecessor Stag, it seemed like maybe the ultra heavy, beyond heavy, holy god, that is so unbelievably fucking heavy. Melvins had disappeared and it was kind of being subsumed by experimentation. Do you think fans had that sense at this point? I had that sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, because like you know, there was only so far that they could kind of push that crushing sound that they had, you know, up until I, I guess what like Bullhead, I mean, Bullhead kind of culminated with Bullhead, really. I, I think, but even I think like it did. the um, like the the seven inch of um, Night Goat was like crazy heavy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah, that remains that remains a favorite. Just in terms of like, if somebody like you know from Mars came down and said, "What's heavy music?" Like Night Goat, is, <laughs> Night Goat might be the slab I'd throw on the turntable nice. right there. Yeah, and um, you know, so so yeah, it seemed like they were just going off the deep end, and like who knew after Stag, after Honky, what the hell we were going to get? And then, and of course, we had Prick at that time, which was basically just kind of a, a joke. It was and, a total um, joke, yeah. Not not at all listenable, and I think that was the whole idea. But then arrived the first in their late 90s trilogy, The Maggot. And I think The Maggot really did bring that super sludge, super ultra-heavy Melvins back into focus a little bit. It's a very focused album. And, and, and it, it's focused album because it's like it's supposed to be because it's basically uh, a triptych, and The Maggot was the heavy portion of it. But I remember, like, being – actually, I think you wrote about it in Maniacs. And I remember being how relieved I was to hear that they were returning to more like, – song-oriented is probably the wrong word, but, but more mm-hmm. conventional, more heavy material because they, they are – they're the masters. Exactly, yeah. And it wasn't like some silly parody of themselves where, like, no. oh, we're going to go to Bullhead. It wasn't anything like that. However, it just – did have that whiff of like you know joe preston era meets the bullhead era just some of that was in there on the maggot and yeah clearly an obviously heavy album and and not but not in any kind of like pretentious sort of way right incidentally first album on mike Patton's zipacac label where they still reside uh and also the first to feature yet another new bassist this time a guy named kevin rootmanis fresh off a career with at the time the recently defunct minneapolis noise rock band cows he graduated. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a fan of the cows. I mean, you know, they're, they're one of those bands, you know, from my 
dimly remembered early teenage years of you know noise rock fandom where i would gobble up anything on touch and go and amphetamine reptile yeah nah as your grandma's writing checks to amphetamine reptile i need that cow's record (laughs) (laughs) see previous episode on old listeners if you are curious what that's all about that's a great story um the maggot could easily be argued as one of the strongest and most enduring melvin's albums totally taking us off topic a little bit but when i was listening to that what it kind of reminded me of was uh rune magic i was thinking about um in venom wow okay yeah uh well in venom was rune magic's turn into even slower territory it's not it's not funeral doom but it was like kind of remarkable how slow they chose to be at that yeah time. and like and just sort of thematic and repetitious and yeah you know, I, I heard all that and that 
and see how pretty. Well, there's there's an interesting element to Melvin's. I mean, despite their often hilarious or just weird song titles, uh, despite the kind of ironic imagery that they drape the albums in, there was always this glorious, super epic metal thread to how they did their sludge yeah, and okay. how you know what what the heaviness conveyed. Well, I think that there is a sincerity in their heaviness. Yeah. But like you said, despite um, all the ironic gestures, like they love, you know, glorious, epic, heavy music, you know, and that like sometimes yeah. um, that sort of, you know, self-consciousness breaks down and you're left with this band that just gets caught up in what they're doing and like totally riffing on heavy ass metal. And I think that's, of course, what make the trappings even more fun. Like you look at the cover of Bullhead, you're like a fruit bowl. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of irony got bastardized and just got stupid after a while. Not with Melvin's, but with copycats and, you know, I think bands and other genres far outside of this. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's a little taste of the maggot, which we clearly worship and just uh, kind of bow down to a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. D- d- didn't ex- really spell out the immediate future for them though because this was part of a trilogy as you mentioned and you know the next one was the mostly quiet bootlicker and for my money the mostly pointless crybaby um <laughs> just a bunch of covers with a bunch of guest stars i think i think the um isn't there a tool collaboration yes. on that that's really yeah. good beyond that i don't care much for that album but um but that's, that's a lot you... for bootlicker either oh i love bootlicker yeah i don't yeah. Those two albums began a period of uh, more creative recklessness or restlessness, if you prefer. We got that sort of an album, sort of not an album, electro retard thing in 2000. Uh, and then in 2001, the difficult sort of noise drone haze thing that was Colossus of Destiny. Is that an album that you have any familiarity with? Yeah. And I remember being completely puzzled by it. I got it. And I, first of all, I love the album title. And, <laughs> yes. and, and two, you know, it was fresh enough from the maggot that I was still pretty excited about them. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I kind of dig that album actually, but it's, it's inaccessible to say the least. Again, great title. And I think it's got like a, a, uh, steer or bull on yeah. the cover with juxtaposed with like some grapefruit or something. You know how it happens. I mean, when I think Colossus of destiny, that's immediately what comes to mind. <laughs> right. Steak and grapefruit. Yeah. <laughs> That was kind of a live recording, really, of just this really, really long droning thing. And it featured Mike Patton and Tools Adam Jones on it as well. And anyway, that's where we find the Melvins in the early 2000s. They're, they're dicking around again. And I don't mean that in any kind of mean way. I, I think that was kind of their modus at that point. Then they unleash an album that seems more like kind of a rightful experimental answer to the maggot, I think. And that's Hostile Ambient Takeover. Sure. Hey, let me ask you this, because I may be misremembering. But do you remember when we went to that barbecue before the first Confessor uh, reunion show? Indeed, I do. And that th- there was that guy there, Brian, who is an illustrator and a musician. Am I right? Brian Walsby. Brian, yeah. Did he play us like in advance of this? Or was he just talking about having heard it? You know what's really interesting? When I think back to that barbecue, I think about him. I think about uh, Nate and Tom Haley not coming to blows, but having some kind of disagreement about something. Yeah. Um, I think about Confessor, of course, and the incredible show we got later that evening. And I think about Hostile Ambient Takeover. This album is linked to that memory. That's what so I'm I saying. don't know. Like, and yeah, I, I remember don't... Brian sort of holding court 
about this album. And I cannot remember if he had an advance of it and played it for us on a boombox, like a couple of clips, or if he was just talking about it. And like his description was so vivid, it almost made me feel like I'd heard it. Yeah, I don't know, but I it's a it's a special memory of what became, I think, for both of us as Melvin's fans, a pretty special album. Yeah, for sure. I don't think we can say it's their best album, but I'll always hold it up pretty high because it's quintessential Melvin's. Totally. I mean, it, it sort of glues together all of their best features. Let's check out the first track. It's a bit called Black Stooges. <laughs> track off 2002's Hostile Ambient Takeover, Black Stooges. I think you hear a lot of different things in that, um, even though it, it's it's pretty distilled Melvins. Um, I think you get some of that, that epic atmosphere that we were talking about earlier, that love mm-hmm. of heavy 70s rock. You also get um, one of the things that characterizes the earliest Melvins is like their very curious uh, approach to mathematics. There's mm-hmm. always been like a sort of tricky element to melvin's trevor dunn from uh, mr bungle um, who plays with buzz and uh, phantom ah made a comment one time he said that buzz knows very little about music theoretically but has 
a deeper understanding of music than most trained musicians. I think that's sometimes the best way to understand music. Um, you know, there's, there, there's obviously infinite ways to understand it and approach it and philosophize about it, but that's sometimes the best where it's just like coming from the ether through someone as a channel right. almost. Right. Right. Uh, rather than, rather than being taught uh, and being like Juilliard schooled or something yeah. like this. Yeah. Buzz is the main songwriter. The Melvins always has been. Um, he needs Dale for sure to make it Melvins, but uh like as you said, that song is a distillation of what Melvin's is kind of all about. Some really strong songwriting by Buzz throughout this whole album, and as you said, it brings in some elements of the older Melvin's. One other element I hear is focus on drums. Yeah, I never think of when Dale breaks out into drumming unaccompanied. I never think of it as a drum solo. It always seems to be just a part. Yeah, know? I mean, but it is. I mean, that's the thing. Is like. You kind of get distracted by all of their hijinks, but like the Melvins can be one of the most rigorously compositional rock bands ever. And in a, it, almost in an orchestral sense where every single musician's part is a like very critical function of the song. Right. And with older songs like Cow and uh, Spread Eagle Beagle, like you'd get Dale taking these sort of lead drum moments, you right. know, and um, and it it made sense when it would happen rather than like you, that usual frustrating reaction of like, oh, God, an in-studio drum solo. Give me a break. Nothing worse. Nothing worse. And this this isn't like that. So so I think they bring that back a little into their sound. Um, and I love uh, Root Monis's arcing bass throughout this whole song. Great tone, too. Yeah. Great tone, yeah. Really, really excellent. Let's move on. This is Dr. Geek. That's fun. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool little short track. It it sounds very um very nineties to me, like when um sort of like noise rock and you know underground alternative bands kind of brought in sort of a rockabilly sensibility. Yeah, yeah. And and I know Buzz is a I think Buzz is a fan of Link Ray. I'm pretty sure. Um, oh. But yeah, it, it's just a yeah, it's a cool little detour. I think. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It throws you off because you've gotten the the very heavy and kind of quintessential Black Stooges before it, and now we get a couple shorter songs before we get into what I what I think is the meat of the album. But uh, Link Ray is a good call. That that really kind of jangly guitar, really fast and furious. Some of it reminds me maybe of the Cows, but uh, although the Cows were a bit more dangerous, right. I think Kevin's kind of bring, maybe bringing his past in just a yeah, little bit sure. there. 
Speaking of short songs, this uh, we're going to do the rare thing we sometimes do and play a full song. This is the entirety of Little Judas Chongo. <laughs> Essential badass Melvins. Uh, totally, man. I think that goes yeah. that takes it back to Houdini in a lot of ways. Or Stoner or Witch. Or Stoner Witch, yeah, for sure. Um and yeah. two, like I would never say that um that Dale Crover is underrated because I, I think he's well regarded. Um yeah. but that song, it, it's it's the little things that Dale does. One, like his drum sound would be impossible were it not for how he just absolutely molested his drum set. Oh, he bashes that thing. I feel so bad for the kit, man. I've seen them live a lot. That's one of the, this is one of the bands I've seen the most. And like, he just looks like so dialed in and look, and he sometimes looks at the kit. Like he just wants to kill it. Yeah. Like he's just, he's got something against it. Yeah. Right. um, Right. The the kid stole his girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah, man. But he's kind of like uh, but Chris Reifert in that sense. Like, it, it's just the subtleties to his playing that make it so remarkable. Oh, for sure. And like, and for what he's doing and the kind of material that they that is the span of the Melvins. Like, he's got very personal and peculiar voicings throughout. Totally. You just know it's him, and he's very tasty in his way. He's yeah, he's a marvel. I, I just think, and and that's why. Okay, yeah, let's call him underrated. I just feel like he's somebody that could be studied. Perhaps. Oh yeah. Uh, but I think he is also well regarded by people that know this band, understand the sort of inner workings of what they're all about. But yeah, that's a that's a great song, great little moment, and and lots going on. As you said, 
badass pretty much describes it. Um, I love this kind of scraping wad sort of guitar thing that answers oh, yeah. a, a lot of Buzz's vocals on that. Uh, to me, that's a, like an eye rolling back in the head moment. Totally. Like, whoa. You know? yep. Very effective. So we're three songs in and it's been a quick three songs. And then we get into this strange middle, like kind of the best part of the I, album. Yeah, I, I think it say, really, yeah. It really starts to take off here with the next four songs. Uh, we're going to listen to a bit from a song called The Fool, The Meddling Idiot. <laughs> Rats are away from the mangle rail we don't need. I got the one to make me More drum playing. Good playing. Yeah. The, so that song is called The Fool, The Meddling Idiot, which I always assume that that comes from like some comic book, superhero, superhero comic book panel or something. Of <laughs> like some villain like screaming that out. The Fool, The Meddling Idiot. <laughs> Good call. I never thought about that. <laughs> and we, uh, we played two moments from that because you kind of have to hear the meat of the song and then you have to hear how it ends. <laughs> Uh, and they get into some really trippy territory there. Something that's probably unprecedented in their catalog at that point. Well, even they had yeah never really explored. I mean, I, I don't know how many like synths were actually incorporated into like a proper Melvin song before that. Really, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dale Crover's credited with keyboards on this. And, you know, here's the thing about the Melvins, too, is like they've got so much depth and variety and vision. And I think this sets them apart from any somewhat similar band. I've never felt there were similar bands. They just kind of are on their own island. But I have had people go, oh, I know you're really into the Melvins. You got to check out X band, whatever, whatever it is. Right. And it just they it just never happens if I check out X band whatever that is because it's just it doesn't have the depth it doesn't have the variety or the vision of the Melvins and I think the fool meddling idiot song here everything we heard kind of illustrates that maybe yeah and I think you hit the nail on the head with depth um, because I think that's really what it is like there is a a genuine sort of erudition to the the melvins and the way that they deploy their many influences and the way that they mingle sounds like you know it's not just like amateurish genre hopping or anything for sure sure. this is a band that knows exactly what it's doing and as mentioned uh dale crover plays keyboards there are a few notable guests on this album too I'm not exactly sure where they're all at. We can make some guesses, but uh, a guy named Toshi plays some keyboards. He might have been responsible for that new wavish bit on The Fool there. Toshi went on to do a lot of recording for the Melvins. I think he's still involved to some degree. And uh, a guy named Adam Jones, who we've uh, talked about, he's from a little band called Tool, due out with a new album any year now. Any year now. (laughs) Uh, Adam plays, he's credited with only Virus on this album so that that's interesting um just maybe assume that that's a lot of noise and then a guy named sir david scott stone do you know who this is i do not he is credited with thunder sheet and electric wire and i i'd like to think of a jamie mirror impulse there yeah, yeah well, that's true From yeah, King Crimson jamie, yeah jamie mirror played a thunder sheet he did. He did. Yeah. He did. I don't know if Sir David Scott Stone uh, chews blood capsules and wears fur and, and clangs a bunch of chains while he does all this. But, well, then he um, needs to get his shit together. He, he really, he really yeah. does. But the guy's a slouch because he went on to this band called LCD Sound System. So, uh, <laughs> go figure. <laughs> the paycheck is better. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm certain. <laughs> Melvin's in a lot of ways is sort of the underground rock equivalent of King Crimson in terms of, you know, their lineup iterations, all the styles that they cycle through over the course of their career, um, and, and probably in the scope of their influence. Um, I, I think both bands are responsible for inspiring a, a ton of bands across a bunch of different genres. Yeah, man, that's, those are all really good points. I, 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 like, I like to think of them that way, too. That's great, man. I think you're dead on. You know, and rather having rather than having one frip, they kind of have two. It's sort of a two headed two headed frip with the Melvins because yep. those are the drivers. The way frip is the driver of Crimson and all their iterations. But um, great but point, Melvin, man. I like I like that a lot. These two things, man. They need fur and they need blood packets. <laughs> okay. If you want to be serious in this game, guys. Well, Jamie Muir, as we as we discussed, <laughs> we move on. How about this song title, The Brain Center at Whipples? <laughs> you got anything for me on that? You got, I got, any, I got any nothing in? for you. You got no intel? I got nothing. <laughs> Let's just have a listen. Where is my fortune? 
pour that hot rock in Melvin's right there. Man, so good. Yeah, it is, man. I don't think we've talked about ZZ Top yet, have we? I mentioned them just in terms of like how, you know, back in the day, Melvin's would, you know, reveal influences and two of those would be Kiss and ZZ okay. Top. But please mention them again because they're a favorite of ours. And yeah. I think I know where you're going. You you know I'm going to Trace Ombres. Which is the, <laughs> the the mother load of seventies groove. Yeah. I, I think. There there's a lot of groove in the seventies. Like back in the late nineties I went on this uh this goose chase for bands in the vein of Black Sabbath and you know, went after um Mountain and Cactus and Sir Lord Baltimore and Bang and and you know a, a number of others and, and Necromandus was actually like sort of the ultimate disappointment for me because like oh, totally. yeah, no, that's name, not the album's called Erexus of Death I don't know what an right. Erexus is but it sounds heavy produced by Tony Iommi and, and produced by Tony Iommi and like really <laughs> falls short of the mark. A lot of those kind of records did, though. I know where you're going with that, too. And and, um, I dabbled just like you did. And I think we both found that, like, there's only one Black Sabbath. There is. But there's also only one CZ Top. And if if you're looking for just, like, absolute beastly groove, I mean, it's hard (laughs) to beat Trace. I mean, really, the first four albums and and even beyond that. But but Trace Home... Trace Ombres is like their most focused exploration of the the heavy groove, I think. Well, it, it also gets mean at some point. I think a, I think a badass groove should be oh, mean. Dude, like Master of Sparks and uh, yeah, mean. Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers. Mean. Yeah, <laughs> a mean son. So, so we're hearing this in Brain Center, basically. Mm-hmm. Hearing a lot of DNA from Trace Ombres. I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I think of like, and, and Kiss was an avowed influence on Melvin's. And um, at first, when I read that, that was during the Ozma era, which is when I got into them in 89. And I, I couldn't really hear it that much. And um, later on, you start to hear the Kiss influence. And I hear it here because I think of an album like Alive, which is just, you talk about mean. That That is a motherfucker of a record. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, well, and, and Kiss could groove like hell, too. We're picking up a lot of ZZ Top and Kiss in this album. And I got to say, I'm glad we are because I haven't totally connected those dots before this. I think I was listening on just, oh, this is a Melvin's record. Oh, here's the weird stuff. Uh, here's the heaviness. But yeah, good way to pick that apart. I, I like where you're I like where you're going. Cool. I like your thinking. <laughs> you got a good brain in that head. Appreciate it. Uh, you want to introduce Foaming? Uh, yeah. Um... <laughs> Foaming. Foaming. <laughs> Let's phone. Let's do it. Let's get fucking hostile. <laughs>
again, we kind of hear a synthesis of the Melvins uh, influences and sensibilities. I hear a lot of uh, Jesus Lizards, Dwayne Dennison in the guitar voicings um, mm. on the first part of that song. That's sort of like cyborg gunslinger. Um, but I, I love at the end how Buzz kicks in the distortion and it, it takes it to a, you know, a more a heavier, like more menacing place and two like uh you know I, I know that they you know they played with jesus lizard jesus lizard had in my estimation one of the most probably the most formidable rhythm section in all of early 90s indie rock you barely even call them indie rock because those guys were like you know hulking like it like john paul jones john bonham levels really good point yeah they were really accomplished you know they weren't just sort of this kind of flash in the pan noise indie rock sort of band either well that's the thing yeah that, i mean you you really yeah accomplished is a it's a perfect word for it like there was a lot of like dilettantism in the early 90s and like this casual like eh, i'm bored maybe we'll start a band yeah and there was none of that bullshit with jesus lizard it was like this is a serious ass band Really good point. Um, and contemporaries of Melvin's. And I think uh, there's a great parallel to Melvin's there too, in terms of like uh, just kind of taking it deeper and, and being more serious. Um, yeah, totally. Even with the fun that's involved, obviously with yeah. both of those bands, um, the levity. Yeah. Th- those are players and, and bands with intents that are kind of far above uh, most of their other contemporaries, maybe. Yeah. You know, I like things like Steel Pole Bathtub, you know, which uh, you know, was a band that like Melvin's ran with or were label mates with. And yeah, Boner, yeah. They had they did a split seven inch with like those kind of bands are fine. And I, you know, I did my share of dabbling in some of that, but um, very little of it lasted for me. I, you know, it just didn't Same have here, that timelessness that something like the Melvin's has. I, I don't think I'm going to rebuy any of those Gas Huffer records. <laughs> Gas Huffer. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there we have Foaming, and uh, we end the album with The Great Anti-Vermin Seed. Now, this is a this is a Melvin's standard for me. This is something that grows in stature for me as a fan every time I listen to it. Uh, I think it's one of those rare buzz lyrics that's actually pretty profound. Uh, I don't think he took – I think he takes his lyrics seriously, uh, but I don't think he takes them too seriously. And I don't think he'd probably call his lyrics profound. I certainly can't speak for the guy. But I think Anti-Verminseed has uh, some really great lyrics that are delivered in a way that underscore the profundity, maybe. And then the long, patient flow of the song. Like, this thing takes its time to get where it's going. It takes a little patience to listen to. I think it's about, what, 16 minutes in duration? Yeah, it's, it's long. It's pretty fascinating. It's totally fascinating. Like, I'm never I'm never bored by it, but I'm also understanding that it's going to take my patience and time. Like, I need, I need to... I, I have to say, this was like... This took years for me to warm up to. Okay. When I first got this record, I, I wasn't immediately into this. And then over time, it sort of revealed its treasures to me. Let's take a listen. I tried to tease out the best moment for last. We opened with a little bit from Anti-Verminseed, but I think uh, I think this is um, a real highlight moment. It's going to be about three or four minutes, so um, let's settle in. Strap it on.
Beautiful little three to four minute moment from the much longer anti-vermin seed. Yeah. I mean, it's just a really, yeah, kind of a beautiful patient piece. Um, a, a rare look into uh, the, the intimate Melvins I'd say. Well, and then of course they do lay on some, some pretty serious sludge, but you're right. Most of it is um, uh, sort of a, a tempered Melvins, a, a, a quieter, more patient Melvins, but also very intense. Totally intense. That's the thing. Like you're, you're kind of on the edge of your seat if you're involved in this song. Uh, and I, like I said, I, I keep getting more involved in it the more I go on with this album. The, you know, more, the more listens I give it over the years. But yeah, really special song, really special album. 
that's hostile ambient takeover. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say uh, about Dale Crover is he was awesome too because he was a drummer that wore gloves. <laughs> yeah, oh, and <laughs> still does. That's ra- that's random, but uh, I think he's Dude, still does. like that guy plays with freaking like tree trunks. Yeah, like you, you, like the the sticks that I play with, you could eat lo mein pretty easily. <laughs> like like Dale Crover's like clubbing bear, you know. <laughs> I, I like the measurement of sticks in terms of like what you could eat with it. I mean, I, I will say that I play pretty effeminate sticks and I, I take a lot of shit for it and I don't apologize. Okay. But I'm just saying Dale Crover plays with very manly sticks. <laughs> you couldn't eat with them though. That's why he's so yeah, small. No, no. You could like, yeah, spear uh, like a, a sow or something and <laughs> roast it on what he plays with. That is fascinating insight, Hunter. That's awesome. I would hardly call that fascinating, but I <laughs> know I'm, 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 I just love it. That's great. Um, so as they would, uh, they follow a focused, serious work, at least serious by Melvin standards, um, with some offshoots, some projects, some collaborations. This is the era where they really just started to do this as a matter of course, you know, you weren't expecting right. another album in this more focused, serious vein. Um, because here we got a couple compilations that look back at earlier eras. Uh, the Pigs of the Roman Empire release, which was a collaboration with Lustmord. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I used to be pretty heavily into Lustmord. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, when it came out, I was like, yeah, I was I was eager. Uh, and they also did another collaboration, actually two collaboration albums with Jello Biafra. Um, so there was a point there where you were like, wow, I guess Melvin's are just doing collaborations. They brought this idea back years later, and that's something they've been doing quite a bit recently. And then finally, in 2006, uh, a restructured, renewed lineup of Melvin's, Kevin Rutmanis left, and... Um, that lineup of Melvin saw Buzz and Dale joined by Jared Warren on bass and Cody Willis on drums of uh, Big Business. Uh, was Big Business a band you were aware of when this happened with the Melvins? Yeah, I was actually aware of them a couple of years before this. Um, okay. Stephen O'Malley had been a fan. Okay. Um, and I, I knew about him from, uh, from, I guess, that and from, I don't know. I, I'm sure I heard about him in a magazine or so. Um, not Really nothing that interested me all that much but man what a what a perfect little fit into the melvins yeah especially bringing a second drummer in that's an interesting cool. choice yeah and it worked it I, I saw them live a couple times with this lineup um it's some great albums i mean nude with boots is probably my favorite with this lineup but my favorite yeah it's excellent but we're going to hear what they did sort of directly after hostile ambient takeover in terms of like that next serious melvins album so uh we're going to take a listen to what the uh, the first product was of this new lineup. The album is called A Senile Animal, and the track we're going to sample from is A History of Bad Men. Yeah. 
That's Melvin's with a history of bad men from senile animal. This has been our hostile ambient takeover worship session. This is radical research podcast 36. Please give us a review on Apple music, formerly iTunes, I guess. I'm not sure how all that still works. Reach out to us via email at radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank Gwyn Tarasca and Kenneth J. Golden for their contributions to our cause. Uh, you can do the same. Just go to paypal.me slash rrpodcast. It's that easy. We'll include that in the show notes as well. I want to make a correction here. Uh, in episode 34, we said Paul Miles, one-time drummer of Anna Cruz's, did background vocals on an Uphill Battle album. That claim seemed too weird to be true, and indeed it was too weird to be true. It's not true. <laughs> uh, the Oracle Metal Archives led us astray, so our apologies for not triangulating. We now have to corroborate Metal Archives intel. We do. But I, I remember when we started this podcast, Hunter, I put you in charge of all uphill battle references. <laughs> Damn it. That was part yeah, of your, your one job, Gin. One job. <laughs> one job, man. Just Anytime uphill battle comes up, man, look it up, all right? Just look. <laughs> Dig deep. Let's get that radical research correct, all right? And, uh, you failed me, man. I've seen that bull battle. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on you. No, it was Metal Archives' fault, but our, our fault again. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, but Ken Nardi and uh, the rest of Anna Cruz's were not too bummed out. So that's uh, thanks to cool. Ken himself for letting me know that perhaps that wasn't true. You want to tell uh, listeners about the next episode, number 37? Sure. Uh, yeah, so number 30, 37? Yep. 37. I know. It's hard to believe, man. We're getting old. We are. We are. <laughs> we're going to be, yeah, we're going to be hitting midlife in three episodes. <laughs> so for, for number 37, we're going deep. We're going into Slovenia, into Venice, um, and we are going to uh, dissect the work of the mysterious devil doll um, and its, uh, its primary driver, the equally mysterious Mr. Doctor. <laughs> a lot more is known about them now than was known about them uh, when they were active. For sure. Uh, but, but, but nonetheless, um, still veiled in all sorts of secrecy. Uh, we'll need to talk about um, Mr. Doctor's calls to uh, Ken Golden at like four in the morning, too. <laughs> um, I think you know more about those stories than I do. I, I, I think that I'm going to have to get some actual... Um, uh, statements from Ken on that. That'd be great. Um, Let's do it. Yeah, Let's... We'll, uh, yeah, and we'll we'll share the transcriptions. That'd be excellent. We're going to do that and more. Uh, we hope to do justice to Mister Doctor, or is it Doctor Mister? On episode thirty-seven, uh, it'll be. I'm not even going to say fun because that's not fun music. That is, um, uh, that's deep diving right there, boy. Yeah, it is deep diving. Thanks for listening. Till I forget how many Then I start again I start again Again!
Talk, talk. <laughs> All you do to me is talk, talk. Arguments. Agreements. Agreements. <laughs> Chit chat. Burble, banter, bicker, bicker, bicker. It's all talk. Brouhaha. It's all. <laughs> it's all talk. <laughs>